that says Mike. It's probably so I don't point out that he's trying to get my attention, but um, I don't work here, so I don't know the rules. Um, so when I was, we lived in Illinois, I had a couple years that I coached eighth grade boys basketball. And in Illinois, the way they do it is you have like regionals and a state tournament and all these things for even for junior high. And it's a lot bigger deal than it probably should be. And uh, so one year we had a team, we were okay. And we had won our way through our sub-regional and we were getting ready to go to two games before you would go to state. And we got down to this gym and we're going to play a team from a town called Beardsford. And I didn't know anything about them. We'd never seen them. They weren't in our area. And so we walk in the gym and our guys are all kind of standing around and we had heard that they had a couple kids that were really big and so our guys were a little bit nervous and pretty soon in walked Beardsford's team of eighth grade boys and none of them were overly big. They had one kid that was pushing six foot but so did we and they walked in and they had dress pants and a nice shirt and ties on. That's what we used to do back then. And They walk in and one of the guys on our team, his name was Cody, he looks at me and goes, coach, I don't think they're that big. I, I think we'll be okay. I said, yeah, I think we're fine. And so this one kid walks over to where the ball rack is. He's in dress pants, dress shoes, it's a tie. He grabs a ball off of the rack, walks under the rim like it's Hoosiers, and he looks up and he goes like this, and he just jumps off two feet, eighth grade kid, and just hammers it. And all of our kids, is their, their jaw just goes, uh. <laughs> so did their coach. <laughs> and Cody, the same kid, walks back over to me and he goes, coach, I think we might be in trouble. Cody was correct. Um, <laughs> I, I tell you that story to tell you this, that, that sometimes, I don't know about you, but there's things in my life that show up and they're much different or much more than I expected. Like there are times in our life where there are things or people that enter our life and we have this one set of expectations and they totally blow it out of the water. Sometimes that's really bad. Some, sometimes that's really good. But this morning we're going to begin a new sermon series here as we head into Christmas called The Coming King. And this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 and we're going to look at a description of this coming king named Jesus. And, and I'm going to suggest to you that this coming king might look a lot more different than you expected. Or, or for the people of Jesus' day as we come to this time where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we think of Jesus and sweet and gentle and baby born in a manger. And Isaiah is going to remind us this morning that this king is much more than what people expected that day. But before we jump in to Isaiah 9 this morning, it's really important for us to, to talk about what's just been spoken of in chapter 8. So in chapter 8 of Isaiah, Isaiah 8 ends in darkness and gloom and hopelessness, uh, the, the, the things that happen when you're around a group of corrupt and wicked people. Isaiah 8 describes the people of God and the people around God as people who were seeking wisdom from anything but God. Isaiah reminds us that this group of people is seeking advice from the occult and of the day. They're giving no thought to the wisdom of God. This is a very dark and evil and almost hopeless time in the life of God's people. Uh, even the people of God are angry and, and they're in despair and many of them are cursing God and they're blaming God. It's a dark, dark place. And in Isaiah chapter 9, everything shifts. Listen to what Isaiah says in the first five verses of chapter 9. He says, There will be no gloom 
for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made the glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at a harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment that's been rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now Isaiah's going to go on. We're going to read a few more verses here in just a few moments. And Isaiah's going to go on. He's going to tell them that this, this hope that's coming is coming in the form of a coming king. Now, now we know in retrospect that everything Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 9 is talking about Jesus. And Isaiah is going to start in these first five verses, and he's going to tell the people of God what this coming king will do. He's going to tell them that there's somebody coming, and this is what he will do. This is what he will do that will change everything we've been talking about. And the first thing he tells them is he says, this coming king will bring light into the darkness. Now, it, it is. It's, it's really hard to describe and to do justice this morning to how dark things were during this time. Like all the things that we look around and think the times that we're living in and the evil that we see and the darkness that seems to surround us, I'm just telling you, not even close to what the people of Isaiah's day are experiencing. There is evil and darkness and sinfulness going on that you cannot even imagine. This is a people who are looking for even a glimmer of light in the midst of a dark world. This is a group of people who it's like they've been in solitary confinement for years and years and years, and somebody finally pokes a hole through the wall so they can see a little bit of the sun. It's an incredibly dark and evil time. And Isaiah says there's a king who's coming who will bring light in the midst of this darkness. His name is Jesus. We, we know that this morning. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, it was God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light in the darkness. In John 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, this coming king that Isaiah is speaking of, is coming into the world to bring light into darkness, hope into hopelessness. And we know that Scripture tells us that he will come again to eradicate darkness forever. This king is more than you would expect. Isaiah also tells us that this coming king will bring joy in the midst of victory. He will bring joy in the form of victory over all their enemies. And I want to ask a question this morning. I want you to think about this. You don't have to answer out loud. But what brings you joy? Like, what is it in life that gets you excited and that brings you happiness and makes you smile? What are those things? We just got done with Thanksgiving. There are a lot of things that bring me joy in Thanksgiving. But, but what is it that brings you joy? Uh, 
Maybe a different question would be, what is it that steals your joy? What's that one thing in your life that when it happens or when it's said or if it did, it, it just, it's like the joy gets sucked out of the room? Did you know that you can have something that does both? Did you know that? I had that this week. I had something that does both. I was sitting in my house overflowing with joy on Friday. Like literally tears of joy welling in my eyes. And I pulled out my phone because I have been waiting and waiting in the midst of a dark time. Right? You know where I'm going? I have been waiting eight years to send a very special friend here in Wayne who eight years ago sent me a beautiful bouquet of black and gold balloons to celebrate their victory. I even had the flower store on ready to dial. And then a blocked punt stole my joy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sometimes sin brings joy to other people. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? Like, we all know it's just, it's just a game, right? <laughs> I mean, right? And there's part of me that, like, I recovered after my phone went across the room. And, uh, like, we all, we all know it's just a game. And yet, isn't it funny how something so honestly meaningless can, can, can make us happy in one moment and sad in the next? And as exciting as that is, it, it's nothing compared to what we talk about this morning. And see, I, I think that might be the difference between joy and happiness is that real joy is a lot harder to steal. Because joy isn't dependent on my circumstances, it's dependent on something bigger than that. And so this morning, I, I really, in all seriousness, want to ask again, as I ask myself, what really brings me joy? What, what victory brings me unending excitement? And I want you to listen this morning as I read a passage from 1 Corinthians what I think might be the most beautiful passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. Maybe you need to close your eyes this morning, or maybe you just need to take a deep breath, and I want you to listen. And, and maybe for you, you've heard this Scripture a bazillion times. But I want you to listen as if it was the very first time you heard this. And I want you to listen to what Paul talks about, about a king who brings a victory that never goes away. He says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. He says, behold, I, I'm going to tell you a mystery. He says, all of us, we will not all sleep, but we all will be changed. He says, in, in a moment, in, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. He says this perishable, perishable body will put on an imperishable one. This mortal body will put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death 
is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And because of that, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor or your life is not in vain. Scripture tells us that there is a king who has come and he defeated sin and death on the cross and that same king will come again and he will end all darkness forever. He will have victory over everything. He will end all oppression. He will end all injustice. He will end all exploitation. He will end all corruption. Everything that is a part of our world today that should not be will end forever. It will be eradicated for all of eternity. And that is the victory that should bring us joy that cannot be stolen. That there is a king who is coming again and he is more than you expect. Well, Isaiah goes on, and he describes to the people who this king is. He, he's told them what he will do, and now he says, this is who the king is. This is what he's like. This is his character. He says this starting in verse 6. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this he describes this king in a way that was probably more than they expected and I think this morning one of the issues that we face in the church and when we face in our own lives as Christians is that we've, we've lost or we've forgotten how amazing this king is. Uh, Philip Yancey relates it to, he tells a story of visiting Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park and there's a digital clock that counts down to when the geyser will erupt and him and his wife were sitting in the, the Old Faithful Inn overlooking this geyser, it's this restaurant with all these windows, and he said as the countdown got under a minute and the seconds ticked away, he said everybody, everybody got up from their seats. They all went to the windows so they could see this. And he said, I did notice as I looked over my shoulder, all the waiters and waitresses and busboys, like as soon as we all got up, it was like they just flooded out of the kitchen to pick up our dishes and refill our water and get all the things done that needed to be done. And he said the countdown kept going, and pretty soon it got to zero, and the geyser erupted, and he said it was incredible. He said there were people, he said, he said, I teared up. There were people who spontaneously applauded. Everybody got out their camera. They oohed and awed. He said it was one of the most amazing things he'd ever seen. And he said, I glanced over my shoulder and I noticed that not a single waiter, waitress, or busboy in the entire place looked out the windows to see what had happened. He said, it dawned on me that Old Faithful had grown entirely too familiar and it didn't impress them anymore. Sometimes I wonder, as we, especially as we get to this season, 
is that we forget the magnitude and the power of the baby in a manger. I think part of the problem in our lives and in the life of the world around us is that we've forgotten how amazing and wonderful and awe-inspiring and kingly this baby Jesus is. It's not just an average, everyday baby in a manger. It's the King of Kings. It's the Lord of Lords. It's, it's the Messiah. It's the hope of the world. And Isaiah wants us in the time that we have left this morning, I think, to re-familiarize ourselves with him. Isaiah gives four descriptors. We're going to go through them quicker than you think. He says, this king is a wonderful counselor. This word translated wonderful actually means supernatural signs. The word means he's a supernatural counselor, and counselor means what you think it would mean. It means someone who gives wise advice or advisors to a king. And the idea that Isaiah is communicating is that this king is a supernatural counselor. He's someone who can give advice in a way that is beyond description. It's beyond the explanation of everyday things of this world. There's, there's a presence and there's a characteristic in this king that is beyond explanation. And his counsel is, is beyond what the world can give. It's a supernatural help in our life. The late Romanian minister Richard Wormbrandt spent 14 years in a communist prison. And, and during his imprisonments, he was tortured repeatedly. He spent three years in solitary confinement. He gave an account of what comforted him during these dark years. He, he, told, he said, I've told the West how Christians were tied in our prisons to crosses for four days and four nights. He said their crosses were put on the floor and other prisoners were tortured in front of them and then they were made to, to fulfill their, their bodily necessities upon the faces and the bodies of the Christians tied to the crosses on the floor. He said, I've been asked after recounting this story a hundred times, what Bible verse helped strengthen you during that time? What was the verse that got you through it? He says, my answer isn't always overly well received. He says, I tell them there wasn't a Bible verse that was any help. Probably not what you thought you'd hear this morning, right? He says, my answer is Bible verses alone were not meant to help. He said, we knew Psalm 23. He says, but when you actually pass through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, you realize, he says, you realize that it was never meant by God that Psalm 23 would be what strengthens you. He said, it's the Lord who strengthens you, not the psalm that speaks of him. He says, it's not enough to have Psalm 23 if you don't have the one of whom the psalm speaks. What Wormbrandt was communicating is that you can know every scripture on the planet. He wasn't degrading scripture or saying that knowing scripture isn't valuable. What he was saying is it means nothing if you don't know the presence of Jesus in your life. Isaiah tells us that this king is a 24-7 supernatural counselor who walks through the darkest of valleys with us. He's more than you expect. He calls him wonderful counselor, mighty God. And that word translated mighty is one that was used all the time for powerful men, warriors who would carry 
the day by their power and their military ability. What he's saying is this baby in a manger is more than you think. This isn't just your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill person. This king who is coming is a victorious king. He is one who will not and cannot be defeated. Revelation 19 describes Jesus this way. He says, I saw heaven open in a white horse, and the one sitting on the white horse was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, his name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I don't know what your house looks like, but that's not in my nativity scene, right? That's the living nativity I want at our church, right? We'll put the hay and all the shepherds and all those things, and then we're going to put a white horse, and that's the Jesus I want to play. What Isaiah and what John reminds us of in Revelation is this king is more than you expect. He's powerful, he's mighty, he is able to defeat any and every obstacle that enters your life or mine. Isaiah says he's also eternal. He's an eternal father. And I love how Isaiah puts these two back to back. He says he's, he's this mighty God, this scary, get out of the way, ride on a white horse, win the day God. But he's also a gentle father. He, he's eternal. He, he's forever. The, the idea is, is time with God is beyond our capability to understand. It, it, it's kind of like the, the man who was sizing up God. I don't know if you've heard this before. And he asked God, he said, God, how long is a million years to you? And God said, well, a million years is like a second. And the man said, well, how much is a million dollars to you? And God said, well, a million dollars is like a penny. And the man smiled and he said, well, God, can I have a penny? And God said, sure, just wait a second. <laughs> right? What Isaiah is communicating here is that this king is a father who lasts for eternity. He's, he's timeless. A second is like a million years. And, and that may sound like, okay, great, but what, think about what that means. That this mighty God is also a father who never leaves. He never abandons. He never walks away. He is eternally present for his children. This king is more than you'd expect. And Isaiah ends this by saying he's also the prince of peace. In John 14, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Prince of peace, Isaiah says, Jesus is the ruler who brings peace. 
He's the one who leads everything in peace. He's characterized by peace. And most of all, this coming king, Jesus, brings an eternal peace because of his death on the cross. In Romans 5, Paul said, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. Jesus is the peacemaker between us and God. Jesus brings peace into your life that defies explanation. He's the ruler of peace. And and I'll be honest with you, like, I don't understand how people get through life without Jesus. Like, maybe you're here this morning and this whole Jesus thing is new to you or he's not in charge of your life. And if that's the case, we are so glad that you're here. Can I just tell you, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you get through the junk and the trash and the the heartache and the things of this world without a peace from Jesus that doesn't doesn't make sense. I've been in rooms with people over the years in ministry where there are things happening that defy explanation. I have sat with people where the tragedy is so beyond what I ever thought I could imagine, and yet I've been with people who have a peace that makes no sense to me. I've been with people when their children have died. I've been with people who have lost jobs that they've had for 30 years. I've been with people when their parents have left them. I've been with people when their spouse abandoned. I've been with people who peace is the last thing I think you would have in this situation. And yet somehow, in the midst of this, I've been with people who Jesus is the king of their life, and they have a peace that makes no worldly sense. I've been with people who the only reason they have peace is they have a king that's more than the world expects. This passage in Isaiah <clears throat> is hard for me sometimes. Um, Isaiah is making it clear that this king is more than a baby in a manger. It's, it's, it's not about a baby. It's not about a current person or, or this time. It's about a king who's coming to reign. Uh, honestly, what, what I struggle with in this passage is, is it's, it's kind of a political passage. On his shoulders, the government will rest. He's talking about a king who comes to reign. And there's thousands of scriptures who, and we'll look at this month, of talking about Jesus as the hope of the world and talking about Jesus as the coming Savior and talking about Jesus as the merciful Messiah. But this passage is talking about Jesus the King. And, and, and I'm this guy, those of you that know me really well, like I, I'm just not a political person. I started out in college as a history and political science major. <laughs> that ended, all right? It's just not my thing anymore. I, I just don't like talking about it, and I never want it in my pulpit. And yet, Isaiah talks about this, and it makes me uncomfortable. Like, it, it seems, I don't know, just like it doesn't go together sometimes. It, it, it's like the two older ladies who were walking around the overcrowded cemetery, and they came upon this tombstone. It said, here lies John Smith, a politician and an honest man. And the one lady looked at the other, and she said, good heavens, it's awful. They've put two people in the same grave. (laughs) That's what I do when I get uncomfortable. I make a joke. (laughs) I think this passage is supposed to make us uncomfortable. Because I think it's supposed to remind us that there is no government in all the world 
that will heal the darkness that fills our land. See, that's been proven true throughout human history. I I used to be a history major. I know a couple things. (laughs) And what I know is in the history of humanity, people have always tried to find the right form of government or, or the right leader. But human sin and human depravity in every place makes that impossible. The pharaohs of Egypt, way back in biblical days, enslaved people so they could build pyramids. Assyrians came into the world and brought a whole new realm of brutality that left piles of corpses behind them everywhere they went. Alexander the Great ruled with Greek wisdom, spreading it all over, but the kings that followed him left a trail of failure and death and defilement. The Roman Empire brought what seemed like stability, and then the barbarian hordes swept across Europe and ushered in the Dark Ages for centuries. The divine right of kings dominated Christendom in Western Europe during the Middle Ages with a feudal system, but the government was always as good or as bad as the moral character of the king. The American Revolution sought to establish Abraham Lincoln's famous words, a government of the people for the people. But I think whatever side of the aisle you sit on, we'd all agree that that hasn't answered all our problems either. See, government cannot answer our problems in this world because it's always dependent on the people who lead it. And the people who lead it, no matter how good or bad we think they are, are always sinful people, just like us. Isaiah chapter 9 is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, 6 and 7. It's read every year at Christmas. It's plastered all over the walls. And I think, I think it is the verse that answers the hopes and dreams of much of the world. Because it's a verse that tells us of a perfect ruler who will reign forever over a prosperous and peaceful realm. His name is Jesus. He is the perfect ruler and savior of the world. And the government someday will be on his shoulders. And everything that is wrong will be made right. Hebrews 1 says, the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You loved righteousness. You hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Bible scholar Tim Chester, as the band comes to get ready to lead us. Chester says we get a glimpse of this coming reign of Jesus when he was on earth. When Jesus was on earth, we we saw his power, right? We, We read in the Gospels of Jesus commanding the waves and rebuking sickness, subduing demons, even defeating death. He's a powerful king. But we also saw his justice. Not only did he exercise authority, he exercised authority with justice and righteousness. As Isaiah promised in verse 7, Jesus fed the poor. He denounced hypocrisy in the church. He welcomed children. He treated prostitutes with dignity, and he touched lepers. That is our king. That is the one who's coming to reign. And he will end all conflict between all people. This king that we celebrate, this baby that comes to earth, is more than you'd expect. 
In Luke chapter 1, when Mary was told of what was to come, this is what it said. It says, you will conceive in your womb, Mary, and you will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This coming king is more than you'd expect. He's better than you can imagine. And this king is where I will place my hope. And I hope it's where you place your hope, too, this morning. If you haven't, we would love to talk to you about that. If you want to do that this morning, we'd love to help you do that. You'd love to place your hope in the king who has come and will come again. You can do that this morning. You can bury your old life in the waters of baptism and be raised anew, surrendered to the king who will reign forever. I promise you, he's more than you expect.